You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, as you can probably guess from the title, First uh, Peter is written by the Apostle Peter, sometimes called elsewhere Simon Peter. Uh, Peter writes two epistles, 1 Peter and, anybody have a guess? 2 Peter, yes, we are on top of things already. You are well caffeinated, I can tell. But Peter is actually, his words are the basis for a third book in the New Testament, a book that doesn't bear his name, a book that we call the Gospel of Mark. It's actually Peter's eyewitness account that The gospel writer, John Mark, one of the initial followers of Jesus, uses to capture the life and and miracles and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter was an eyewitness to all that we call the good news or the gospel. Peter was one who experienced the love of Christ Jesus intimately. He knew his kindness. He knew his power. He saw the miracles. But Peter, as we know from his own account through the gospel of Mark, also was a man that while he knew the love and intimacy and kindness of Jesus, he was also a man that was acquainted with doubt. He was a man that was acquainted with fear a man that was acquainted with suffering, even in the presence of Christ Jesus. And so here's why I say that as I introduce Peter as the author of this book that we're going to walk through over the next three months. It's because Peter is a fellow sufferer and struggler. Peter is a fellow human in need of grace. Peter doesn't have one of those stories that pastors like to say. Um, I, I will never forget the day that there was a pastor that, that said this. Maybe you've heard pastors say something like this. You know, if you would have known me before Jesus, you wouldn't have liked me very much. And I remember distinctly, and this is probably my own sinful heart posture, but I distinctly remember in that moment going, I don't think I like you right now. <laughs> you know, And there's going to be days when you're going to see me or Pastor Robert probably far more me than Pastor Robert, Uh, but you're going to go, that Michael needs a little more sanctification, right? Sometimes I read Paul, and Paul will make mention that he was a persecutor of the church, and he had gotten it wrong, but you see Paul as he's writing, you're like, gosh, Paul, okay, once you met Jesus, I mean, your life you got it together, right? You suffered well for Jesus. You followed him well. You obeyed him. But then you look at Peter and you're like, Peter, you, you complete me, right? Like you, you're my kind of guy. You met Jesus and he called you out of that former life and you're like, I'm going to follow you to death. And then later on, uh, Jesus called you Satan, because that's how wrong you had gotten it. And then even later on, after Jesus had publicly called you Satan, you thought maybe that would have calmed down the pride a little bit. Later on, you you told Jesus to his his face, no, Jesus, you're wrong. I'm going to follow you to death. I will never deny you. And of course, Jesus was right, right? Like this is the gospel writer, Peter. He's not preaching from a mountaintop down at us. He's offering us words of comfort in the midst of the valley that he knows well. This is the letter that Peter writes. He he quickly goes from introducing himself to introducing his audience as well as the purpose of his letter. Now, before I was a pastor, I, I, I worked in the Department of Homeland Security, and I was an analyst for a long time. And so we had to do a lot of writing for people that made big, seemingly important decisions. And we, we, we had this phrase that we would use whenever we would write. And the phrase was bluff, bottom line up front. The idea was most of these people would take whatever you had written. And it doesn't matter if it was 10 pages or 10,000 pages. They were going to read it in an elevator from floor two to three. And when they got out, they were done. And so you better say whatever you're going to say. And you're going to need to say it quickly. Maybe that doesn't resonate with you. Instead, let me use another example from my elementary school days. 
where I learned that every good paper ever written was written in five paragraphs. No more, no less. Is that not an experience that anyone else had? Okay, that's fantastic. Here's what's going to need to happen. I can't see you well, so if you don't give me verbal feedback, I'm going to make assumptions that sound like you're not getting the point, and so I'm going to tell at least three or four more analogies or examples, and they're not going to get better because I put my best ones up front, okay? That's right, bottom line, up front, right? Five paragraph essays, and this is what they told me. They told me, you write an introduction, and in the introduction, you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you use exactly three paragraphs to tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you use a concluding paragraph, and you tell them what you told them. And Peter, doesn't, he doesn't hide the punchline, right? Very quickly, up front, he tells us what the entire book of 1 Peter is really about and what the entire church living on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, but also awaiting the return of Jesus, what we desperately need. So first, he tells us who he's writing to, and quite honestly, he tells us who the church Big C Church, which includes us thousands of years later, who we actually are. And I want you, if you write in your Bibles, to circle these letters or, or these words, or at least in your study guide, circle these. He says that he is writing to elect, circle that. He's writing to exiles, circle that. And he's writing to the dispersion, circle that. These three words are central to the entire book. And so we want to ground ourselves into it even now, who it is that Peter is writing and what he's telling us about us as Christ followers. First, Peter says that he is writing to the elect. Literally, he's writing to those that have been chosen by God or the beloved ones or the beloved people of God. Now, now Peter is writing to an audience that is likely both Jew and Gentile. And so this statement that these people, simply by the blood of Christ Jesus, are now the chosen, beloved people of God, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of their moral history or moral resume, that these are the beloved people of God is a shocking statement for even those that would be initially reading it. Right? Peter is saying, and he's bestowing upon them, an incomparable title of honor. He's saying, the God of the universe has chosen you. And, and there's no pride to be associated with this title, only awe and thanks. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says of the nation of Israel, he says, it's not because you are many in number that I have chosen you. In fact, you are the least of all nations. But I have set my affections upon you. And so Peter, before he gets into anything else, looks at the church. He looks at you and I and he says, above all else, know that the God of the universe has chosen to set his affections upon you. Like the look that a bridegroom gives his bride when he walks down the aisle. Creator, holy God, has that look in mind when he sees you. He says that the church is the elect, the chosen, the beloved, but they are also the church in the dispersion. I'll come back to exiles. The church in the dispersion. The Greek word is diaspora there and literally means the scattered ones. It's the sense that here is a people that have been driven out from their homes. Uh, I went to grad school at, at Texas A&M, and while I was there, Hurricane Ike occurred. And, and I remember we, 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 we were watching the news, and they were projecting the path that it would come later on that day, and it was kind of the morning as the, the landfall was supposed to happen that night. And by about 2 or 3 in the evening, Brian Collins Station which is where Texas A&M is. It's about an hour, hour and a half in from the coast, from Houston, some of those other areas. Every Walmart, every Target, every grocery store, every hotel, every gas station was full. People who were fleeing the storm were setting up camp in Walmart parking lots because they had nowhere else to go. The hotels were booked. They were overflowing. There was nowhere else to stay, but they had to leave. 
Peter is saying to the church, and I need you to hear this, this includes us. We are a people that have been scattered. We are a people that have lost our homes. If you don't believe me, you can look back at Genesis 3, verse 24, and what I would consider one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture. After Adam and Eve have lived perfectly in the garden in the presence of God Almighty, after they have been tempted, after they have sinned and the Lord God has pronounced the curse of that sin over them and the world, verse 24 says, He, God, drove out the man. That, that word is, is a word that you would use for, for what you do to cattle when they don't want to go. That's what the Lord had to do because I think in that moment, maybe a glimmer had come into the mind of Adam and Eve and they thought to themselves, oh no, what are we about to lose? What have we already lost? And what they lost was their place. They lost their home. And this term, dispersion, scattered ones, the ones that have lost their home, is the one term within these three that doesn't just apply to the church, it applies to all humanity. All humankind has lost their home, lost their place. And as we'll see, all humanity knows it. It's why all humanity is on a constant treadmill, a constant journey, trying to find the place that they think they will finally be able to be at rest. And spoiler alert, they never do. The church is the chosen beloved ones. They are dispersed and scattered, but he also calls them exiles. Now, that term to us has, has a negative connotation. It almost feels like they are the scattered ones. But the exile term actually means sojourner. It, it's got, in some ways, a positive connotation. It's got a, it's got a movement to it. It means they are temporary dwellers. That though they are scattered, they are on their way somewhere. They are making their way towards home. And so even as Peter says that we have been dispersed and scattered, we are not homeless, but in fact, we are just passing through. We are on our way home, but we're not there yet. Beloved, this is who we are. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you are human, you have been scattered. And if you are in Christ, you are still, as you are scattered, the beloved ones. And we are on our way to the place where we finally will belong. Peter continues, and he tells them, this elect exile of the dispersion, the people of God, he is writing to them according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Peter says that you are elect exiles of the dispersion, that you are the chosen, beloved, and yet not home yet people. Why? Because of the foreknowledge of the Father the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of the blood. Now listen, I, we could preach an entire sermon just on those verses, but here's, here's what I think Peter's trying to do here. P Peter is, is, is providing a, a Trinitarian, the triune nature of God, that he is one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he is telling us that we are exiles according to the triune God. That it's not by accident, that it's not even by our own failure, but where we presently exist as the people of God is because of the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He, he's telling us that we're caught up in something that is far bigger than ourselves. That we are in the midst of the unfolding great story of the universe, the story of 
redemption that had been planned out before eternity passed was carried out by the precious blood of Jesus and is actively now being worked out by the power of the Spirit who is bringing dead men and women to life. And he says, that's where you find yourself. He's comforting us, lest you and I would look up one day and say, God, have you forgotten about me? If this doesn't ring home to you, I'll just tell you that this truth rings home deeply to me and my family right now. We have been incredibly well welcomed by this church and by this community, but we often wake up feeling like strangers. And we ask the question, God, what, what are you doing? Like, I, I, I felt somewhat at home there. I felt like I had a purpose there. I felt like people needed me there. And, and we, we said to people who didn't understand, God is calling us out. And now we're here and sometimes we wake up and we go, God, did, did we hear you wrong? Did we make a mistake? And it is comfort for me to hear Peter say, you are here according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And you are here because of the sanctifying, setting apart work of the Spirit. And you are here out of obedience to Jesus so that you and your life might be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now here's why this is important, that that Peter applies this term, this phrase, the working of the triune God to the scattered church, because all of us, are prone to do one of two things with the the three categories of elect exiles that are dispersed. We're prone to do one of two things. We're prone to either deny that we are those things, or we're prone to try and fix it on our own. Right? The the, the denial is is the stoic response, especially that Christians tend to give. My my favorite phrase, and I I say that tongue-in-cheek, is when I'll I'll talk to Christ followers, and, and I'll just ask them, hey, how's it going? You know, they'll say something like, you know that raise that I was asking you to be praying about? I didn't get it. And then they'll say, but it's okay. It's okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Is it? Like, is it actually okay? Do you feel okay? Or, man, marriage is really hard right now, but, you know, we're all right. And I'll say, are you? But we do this. We try and deny the fact that we can't find our home here in this world. We deny the fact that that God really does love us even in the midst of suffering and trials. That he really is in control and that we don't find ourselves in a place mistakenly, but that the sovereign God of the universe ordains the steps of every man, woman, and child, that he has ordered the very specks of dust that float through the air. We deny it. Or we try and fix it ourselves. We try and convince ourselves that we must and we can change these truths. Right? We try and make this place our home. We, we try and convince ourselves if we, if we just get the right house, uh, if we just get the right flooring in our house, I'm just thinking about moving into a house. If we just get the right paint color, the right furniture, the right countertops, the right appliances, we are looking for all of these. So if you know where to find these, please let us know. Right? If we just just get settled, if we just get into a rhythm, if we just get into a routine, if our kids just reach this age, if they just finally go off to school, if they're done with school and we hit the summertime, if they just go off to college, if they just would graduate college, if, 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 then it'll be home. Anybody found that place? Like the place of home where you don't wake up and go, if only? And it's always my favorite joke, and I don't have very many jokes, but if you think you have, has anyone here ever owned just one smartphone or iPhone? No. Ever? Like, right, because it comes out, and you're like, this one's going to do it. And then they're like, oh, the 11SAB Plus is coming out. And you're like, well, this one didn't quite do it, but that one's going to do it. 
right? It's the lie that we believe. If only I had more of the things that have failed to satisfy, then finally I'll be satisfied. And it doesn't work. We either deny it or fix it. And what Peter is inviting us into is admitting it. Admitting to ourselves, this is not my home. Admitting to ourselves, this is not going to be my home until Christ Jesus comes back and renews and redeems it. And admitting to ourselves that because we don't feel at home, it doesn't mean that we are not loved by the Father. That we can hold both of those things in tension. And in fact, that's what the Christian life looks like. Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian I love, one time said, I always thought that once I became a Christian, things would make sense. And he says, once I became a Christian, now things tend to be more difficult to hold in tension. I am loved, and yet I suffer. I am on my way home, yet I am not there yet. I am meant to find joy in this world, even in the midst of difficulty. This is who we are. And then Peter ends with the purpose of the entire letter. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's not just a throwaway greeting. He is saying, this is what you and I need. Grace and peace, and we need it in abundance. Grace, we need the kindness of God, his favor that is unmerited and un." deserved. And we need that grace, that kindness to lead to peace. Hebrew word is shalom. We need everything to be made new again. This is what exiles need. Or as we've called the sermon series, this grace and peace makes us not exiles in despair, but it makes us exiles in Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Why? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter moves on from the introduction right into providing that grace and peace which he is praying for. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have five kiddos that range from 14 down to four. And our kiddos are vastly different in personality and interests. But there's one thing, well, there's actually a few things, but one of the things that they have in common is that when each of them were born, we gave them a blanket, kind of one of those, I don't know, three foot by two foot blankets when they were infants. And those became the one thing that they couldn't be without. Right? So especially for our our younger kids now, we travel a lot because of work, or we'll travel to go see family, or we'll travel to go on vacation. And the only thing that they need to be okay, and the one thing that they will not be okay with without is their blanket. As long as they have that blanket, it it, it anchors them. It reminds them that there is a place for them, that there is a place of peace and rest and family and familiarity. But if they don't have that, well, mom and dad won't sleep because they won't sleep. Peter moves on from his introduction into a doxology, into a, a song of praise and celebration. And what he celebrates is the work and the grace of God in giving us gifts of comfort. He tells us that though we are exiles, though we are dispersed, though we are not home yet, that our God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ himself has not forgotten about us, but in the midst of our sojourning, he has given us gifts to bring comfort. And we're going to move through these fairly quickly, but these are the three gifts that Peter identifies. The comforting gift of a living hope, the gift of a deepening faith, 
and the gift of a revealing love. A living hope, a deepening faith, and a revealing love. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says, God himself is worthy to be praised because he has given us the gift of being born again to a living hope. Now, now hope is a, a word that we use in lots of different ways in our language. Oftentimes, we, we talk about or think about what we might call a fond hope. Pastor Robert just spoke about this a few weeks ago in Romans 8. A, a, a fond hope is, is a hope of something that we wish for but do not expect, right? I, I hope I get a promotion. I, I hope I get the girl. Or, or for Rachel and I, I hope, beyond hope, we hope that they will accept the offer on the house. They didn't repeatedly, right? This is a, a fond hope, a hope of something we wish for. But Peter tells us that's not biblical hope. And that's not the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. He defines hope as a living hope. This word living hope, this phrase that Peter gives us, certainly refers to our living and resurrected King Jesus. He says we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection, the living again of Jesus Christ from the dead. But this living hope doesn't just describe the person of our hope, it also describes the condition of our hope. That our hope itself is not a dead and dying hope. Right? I remember as we were putting in offers on a house, we, we put in an offer on a house with a pool. And, and we heard back immediately from the, the selling realtor, and they said, hey, great offer. We really think that's a strong offer. We're, we're, we're waiting another day to hear back from other offers, but we will be in communication with you tomorrow. And so we, we waited, and then it was tomorrow, and we didn't hear anything. And so we're like, you know what? It's all right. Maybe they're just discussing things. We'll wait again. We waited another day. We didn't hear anything. And so our realtor reached out, and the, the selling realtor said, just be patient. Just be patient. We're, we're sifting through things. You're looking real good. Just be patient. And then we never heard from him again. And day after day after day, I was like four weeks later, and I was like, maybe he'll call today. <laughs> maybe he got hit by a bus or something, you know? Uh, I wasn't wishing for that, but I might have been hoping. No, that's not true. Right? But my, our hope was quickly dying. It was fading out. And Peter says, that's not the hope that you have in Jesus. As a matter of fact, Peter says that our hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable. It will not go away. Even if our earthly lives conclude, our hope in Christ Jesus will not. It is undefiled. It is pure, whole, perfect. It is all that we need and all that we truly desire, and it is unfading. It won't just satisfy for a moment. It is the type of hope that the first bite is preceded by the second bite, which is every bit as good, and then the next and the next, and it does not diminish. It only increases and satisfies all the more. He says, in all of these things, our hope is grounded. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Why? Because Christ's rule and reign is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. Or maybe to, to bring this down a little bit. The reason that our hope is a living hope is based on the fact that you and I have been united to Christ Jesus. That our hope is now found in him, which means as he lives, 
we live. Which means as he is loved by the Father, we are loved by the Father. Which means as the Father hears his prayers, the Father hears our prayers. Romans 8 tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ so that as Christ will receive an inheritance, we will receive an inheritance. It's a doctrine that we call union with Christ and the, the name or the term matters far less than the truth, which is that it is no longer you or I who live, but Christ who lives in us, that when the Father sees us, he sees the perfection of Christ and the power, glory that is due to Christ Jesus, we will now be given because of his work. Peter calls us to live boldly as a response to the gospel, but not because of the hope that we find within us, but because of the hope that we have in Christ in the midst of an uncertain world, in the midst of a world where we are dispersed and scattered, Peter says you have comfort that your hope is a living hope that will never fade away. Peter sings the praises of God because he has made us alive in a living hope. He's given us the gift of a living hope, but also he's given us the gift of a deepening hope faith. Now bear with me because this isn't going to sound like a gift. Peter goes on and he says this in verse 6. In this, this living hope, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That word is, is a, 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 a picture of being pressed. You have been pressed in by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that God has given us the gift, even as we sojourn, of deepening faith. Peter culminates this, this living hope with this song of praise, and he continues on, and he confesses that though we are a people with a living hope, we are also a people who will be grieved, pressed, afflicted, experience trials and difficulty and suffering. You know, last week, uh, Pastor Robert preached uh, this beautiful sermon that we will never be separated from the love of God. But he outlined this verse in Romans chapter 8 from the psalmist David that says that we are being killed all the day long for your sake. And I remember sitting in the back and, and having two things going on in my brain. One was hearing this truth and hearing the comforting words that we will never be separated by the love of Christ Jesus and thinking, Thank you, Lord. And the other thing that I was thinking is, if someone is new here today, they're going to go, Jeesh, this is not seven steps to a better marriage and three steps to more successful finances. Like, this is deep and this is hard. And walking through Romans 8, there has been a lot of discussion of suffering and difficulty and trials, and temptations. And can I tell you why we've been discussing it? Besides the fact that Scripture tells us to. Can I tell you why we've been discussing it? Because that's life. It just is. And, and listen, every self-help message and Instagram post that you're going to see is going to tell you don't concentrate on the difficult things. It'll just weigh you down. Go find a beach somewhere, or play some good music, or, or watch, you know, like America's Got Talent, where every, you know, difficulty results in you having the best singing voice in the entire world. Right? Except for the fact that that's not life. Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Our flesh 
is stubborn and sinful. We're prideful and our faith is feeble and frail and it fails us. And we get confused and we don't understand what's going on. And Peter says, yeah, the beloved of God, the chosen people, will be pressed and grieved by various trials. But here's the beautiful part. Peter weaves in those trials and difficulties and suffering into the doxology, into this song of praise. He says that through the work of God, that even these sufferings and trials that we will be subjected to are actually something to be praised. And we should say, if we are at all honest, yeah, how? Peter, you better explain yourself. And he does. How, he says? Because though you will be grieved by various trials, they will result in the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. The the process to refine gold, you you take impure gold or, or raw or slab gold, and you you place it in something called a crucible. It's this vessel that that is able to withstand high temperatures. And so you take this gold, this raw gold, that is mixed with all sorts of other minerals and dirt and debris, and you put it in the crucible, and you heat it up to about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, or what I would call a good July day in Georgetown. You heat it up to 2,000 degrees, the gold melts and becomes liquid, and from there, the pure gold separates from the impurities. And then you can remove the impurities, and what you're left with is pure, unadulterated gold, a precious, precious thing. Now, I want you to be really careful in the way you read this passage, because I want you to notice what Peter says is refined here. Peter doesn't say that we are refined like gold. He says that our faith is refined like gold. Now, now here's what that means. At the very least, it means that our faith is impure. And that our faith needs refining. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not just talking about the fact that our faith is mixed with doubt. What I'm saying is that our faith in God is actually constantly mixed in this world with our faith in ourselves, in our faith in other people, in our faith in our circumstances, in the world around us. And that through trials and suffering, that the Lord being good and gracious will refine our faith until the only thing that is left is the pure faith of the faith that we have in Christ Jesus, the one that is more precious than gold. Our faith is a gift from the Lord, but it is so often impure faith. And suffering will take you to the place where you will find out that you are not worthy to have faith in that you are inadequate. You will find out that your skills and your ability, your discipline and your diligence is not enough to carry you through. You will find out that even those close to you, people around you will fail you in the midst of suffering and struggles. But you will also find that Christ never will. You know, there's this beautiful thing about childhood where kids in their young ages believe that their moms and their dads will always and can always fix anything. My four-year-old and my six-year-old, no matter how big the problem or how small, right? Like one of my kids would be like, Dad, it's lightning outside. Make it stop. I'm like, yep, I'm uh, just... Give me, let me check the weather app, 30 minutes, and then I will do that, right? At the same time, they'll say, Dad, make it stop lightning. They'll also come to me and say, Dad, my Xbox controller broke. Or, Dad, my sister keeps poking me. 
Or, Dad, there's crust on my bread. Take it off. And that's to my 14-year-old, you know? No, that's not true. That's not true. No, he's a good kid. And he knows how to take crust off bread. We've trained him well. Right? But there, there's this idea that kids just inherently go, problem, where am I going? Mom and dad, they'll fix it. They have complete, though obviously incorrect, faith in their parents. There's no hesitation. They don't pause and go, you know, let me consider my options here. You know, I'm in this argument with my sibling, and I could go to mom or dad, but I also could consider ways that I could solve this on my own. Trust me, I've tried. I've tried to tell them to do that. It doesn't work. They just go. When our faith is impure, do you know what happens when we get put into the crucible? At first, we flail around because we don't know where to go. Maybe, maybe I'll try and get out of this myself. Or you know what? I just need this spouse over here, and this will make it all better if I just have this position or enough finances or the right friends. And we flail around looking for what will finally help. And Peter says, listen, believe it or not, even as you find these other things to fail, these sufferings will help you realize that the one thing you have is also the one thing you need, which is faith in Christ. There's this beautiful story in Revelation 5, John, in this vision of heaven, he finds himself and all of these multitude of creation are surrounding this, this scroll. And this scroll, contained within this scroll, is, is the plans of God to redeem all things. And, 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 and the scroll just needs to be opened, because once it's opened and the plans of God are brought to fruition, the new heavens, the new earth, perfection, peace, glory, joy, happiness, pleasure, all of those things are going to come and everybody's looking at the scroll and they go, who can open it? Who can open it? Is there anyone worthy? And it says in Revelation 5, John begins to weep. Because he begins to fear, maybe no one can open it. But then he sees the lamb. The lamb who was slain, our King Jesus, approached the scroll and he opens it. And listen, suffering will bring us to weeping. It'll bring us to the place of saying, can anyone help? And the answer is Jesus. Even in this sojourning world, he will deepen and refine and purify our faith. We have a living hope. We have a deepening faith and finally a revealing love. Peter ends this section like this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'll confess to you, this final gift, it surprised me and snuck up on me, but has given me great comfort. Uh, a few months ago, I was reading a, a book by Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. If you've not read it, grab it, read it. Amazing book. In there, Brennan Manning, uh, he quotes Augustine, the, the fourth century church father. And, and he quotes him, and I would have, if you had given me a multiple choice of 500 guesses, I would have never guessed that this quote came from his mouth. But this was the quote. <clears throat> Augustine once prayed and wrote down, Lord Jesus, do not let me lie when I say that I love you. Lord Jesus, do not let me lie when I say that I love you. And that prayer resonates so deep within me. And maybe this is awkward for you because you have a view of pastors or ministers that somehow we've kind of made our faith complete but gosh, if that's your view, let me just crush that right now. This prayer resonates so deeply within me because my affections and my commitment, my fidelity to the Lord, my willingness to count him worthy above all other things 
so constantly feels woefully inadequate. Woefully inadequate to the truths that I get to declare week in and week out. One of my constant prayers is, God, help me to love you like I want to love you. I don't love you like I should. I don't love you like I want. Please, God, help me. My love, my devotion to him is fickle. Oftentimes it lacks passion and can be dry. And and my lack of love is honestly one of the things that causes me the most doubt in my life. And here's what Peter says to me and to Augustine and anyone else that struggles with loving the Lord like they ought to. He says this to them. Though you have not seen him, you do love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Peter says to the church, this church, that though they may have been a first century church, were not men and women that had ever looked Jesus Christ in the eyes. They didn't walk with him. They'd not been embraced by him. They weren't next to him as he healed the leper and the paralytic as he cast out demons. They weren't there on Good Friday to watch him be willingly hung on the cross. They didn't run to the tomb. They didn't touch his nail-scarred hands and his sides. They weren't there for the commissioning. None of those things. And yet Peter, who was there, looks at the church who has only received the gospel by the proclamation of the work, of the word and the empowering of the spirit. And he looks at him and he says, I can't believe you loved him like that. You haven't even seen him. And you love him. You don't see him now in the midst of suffering and difficulty, and yet you believe in him. He stands in awe of the love and belief that the elect exiles have. I lived in, in Montana as a kiddo, and one of the things that we got to do on a class field trip one time, they, they brought us down to this river in kind of the mountains. We lived in Great Falls, and, and we got to go uh, panning for gold. Right? I don't know if you guys have ever done that. And here, here what was awesome, there's a bunch of people. It was, it was kind of a touristy attraction. And, and you would, you would kind of you'd get the dirt and the rocks and this little pan, and you'd run it through the water, and you'd shake it. And then like every four minutes, you would hear someone go like, <gasps> right? And you're like, did someone find gold? Right? And then the next thing they would do is they would call over like an expert, right? And the expert would come over and would be like, that's a cigarette butt. That's not, that's not gold. Or that's a bottle cap, you know? Uh, Sometimes they would say, oh, you know what? That's, that's, that looks like gold. It does, but it's actually a, a mineral called pyrite, right? What we call fool's gold. But you would, you know, you'd have to get their approval, the experts' opinion on whether or not what you had found was actually truly gold. And Peter says, hey, listen, like I know what love looks like and I know what he looks like and I know how good he is because I got to see him with my own eyes. I was there on the mountain of transfiguration. I was near him when he was crucified, when he said it is finished and I saw his resurrected glory. And Peter looks at the church and he says, what you have is real love for him. Now, this isn't a badge for us to wear, to be proud of. What it is, is a commendation that Peter gives to the church and saying, the spirit really has given you a new heart. He really has given you faith. He really has given you new affections. And yes, it's feeble. And yes, it fails, but it's real. And because it's real, I need you to hear this. If the Spirit has begun the work of giving you even a feeble and fickle love for Jesus, He will see it to completion. And so rejoice, He says, because this even feeble, fickle love and belief that you have is obtaining for you the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Lord God has given us a new heart. When I counsel people and they come in, 
Man, I've counseled people whose lives are a mess, but they are on their knees in the midst of that counseling session with snot running down their face and just saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to trust him. I want to love him. Why is my life a mess? And there are times where I'll just look at him and say, I don't know, but I can tell you this. Dead men don't question whether or not they love Jesus enough and whether or not they follow Jesus enough. They don't wrestle with whether or not the Lord is sanctifying them the way that they want them to. Children, beloved children, wrestle with those things. And Peter says, even in the midst of this world as exiles, we have the gift of a revealing love. Paul Miller is an author that I love, and he's written a couple books. And as he was preparing to release a book called Love Walked Among Us, he, he told a story. And this story was about his family and his wife. They have a, a daughter who is uh, severely autistic and has some other, um, some other challenges in life. She can't speak. Uh, and because she can't speak, even though she knows what she wants to communicate, she, she wrestles with anger and impatience and, and all of these other things. And when they were uh, in past, when he was in pastoral ministry, Paul Miller, he said, my, my wife came home one day and, and she looked at me and, and, and she said, do you love me? And he said, of course I love you. He said he began to walk up the steps and she called back after him, but do you, do you love me? And he said, yes, I love you got to the top of the steps, and she said, are you sure you love me? And he said, what is going on? And he said, she, she began to pour out her soul to me. And what was coming out was that she had lost friends. She had lost acquaintances. She had lost opportunities in her life because there was a suffering in her life that just wasn't going away. He said, we are pre-programmed as people to deal with suffering that has an end date. We can get through a lot of things if you just tell me it will end on a certain date at a certain time and in a certain place. We can endure. But when we are presented with suffering that doesn't go away, it feels overwhelming. Peter does not shy away from the fact that we are exiles, that we are not home, and that living as exiles is challenging and difficult. But in his honesty, he also reminds us that there is an end date. That there is an end to this suffering that we will, even though we have lost our home, will one day make it home. And so my prayer for us as we walk through this book is that we would be honest about where we are and who we are but that we would even be more honest about who our God is and that he is with us in the midst of this sojourning. Pray with me.